You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Design needs to be in service to community first mm. and foremost, not in service to awards or to ego. You know, it's about getting those voices to the table. Welcome, everyone. Really appreciate people coming out today. It's wonderful that you could come and join this conversation. Room for Everyone, Designing for Inclusivity. This event is part of Melbourne Design Week 2023, which is an initiative of the Victorian government in collaboration with the NGV and presented in partnership with the Wheeler Centre. I am Jess Lilly. I am thrilled to be hosting today's discussion, even though we're one woman down, and I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I'm a broadcaster at Triple R and co-founder of the Open Arms, which is a purpose-driven creative company here in Nam. if you haven't come across me before. Jenna Cohen, unfortunately, the founder of and director of Honeycomb Access and Design, was on a winging her way back from um, a work trip in South Korea, which I was really looking forward to hearing about, but um, unfortunately her plane was delayed and so she's currently taxiing uh, on um, Tullamarine as we speak and very sad about it, so sends her apologies. Um, I want to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, I'd also like to warmly welcome any First Nations people with us today and I pay respects to your elders past and present. And in the context of today's discussion, I do want to acknowledge the incredible design and knowledge systems passed down between generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples for tens of thousands of years in the world's oldest continuing culture. I think that, you know, those design systems were incredible in the way that they connected people to and society to country, embedding deep cultural knowledge and ensuring lands and waterways were protected and cared for while sustaining First Nations people for tens of thousands of years. On the flip side, I think it's also worth acknowledging that design systems have been weaponised <laughs> as a tool of attempted erasure. Um, by settler colonisers. Design is not always used for good, and I guess we'll be talking about that a little bit today. Um, the gridded street system in Nam is a really good example of that, of using design to claim ownership of land in a way that removes all signs of prior uh, Aboriginal existence, land use and management. And to that point, I suppose design is living history. It can encourage belonging in the world we are in now. Um, it can build new systems towards the world we want to live in, but it also leaves us to grapple with what's come before. Um, and as we do grapple with designs past, present and future, I am thrilled to introduce, it was going to be, I had three, two incredible women, <laughs> whose work aims to build inclusion for marginalised and vulnerable uh, communities in many different ways. On to our amazing speakers. Dr Manisha Amin is the Chief Strategist and Visionary at the Centre for Inclusive Design, developing design strategies and approaches that consider the full range of human diversity, including ability, language, uh, culture, gender, age, and other forms of human difference as part of the design process. Manisha also hosts the podcast With Not For, facilitating conversations to design a world that works for all humans. Um, Manisha is also a published novelist, I'm just going to throw that out there, and has worked in innovation, design, environmental advocacy and the non-profit sector. Welcome, Manisha. Thank you. Simona Castricum is a multidisciplinary creative and academic working in music and architecture. Her work explores queer and trans intersections in architecture, music, the public realm and civic life. Simona completed her PhD in architecture in 2022 at the University of Melbourne, exploring uh, gender non-conforming and queer spatial production in the city, in architecture and in public space through musical communities. Her lived experience uh, and her lived experience as a musician and DJ and is now doing a postdoctoral research fellowship in architecture at the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne. She's been published widely, has consulted in uh, gender design for projects including Arts Centre Melbourne, the Brunswick Bars and Pride Centre and uh, has released some banging tunes which... <laughs> I thoroughly advise that everyone needs to listen to as soon as they get out of here. 
<laughs> so I'm going to ask, I'm going to sort of um, start pretty general. This concept of inclusive design means different things to different people. Um, Manisha, there's something that uh, you have a bit of a mantra with the work that you do, which is nothing about us without us as a core platform to your work. What, what does inclusive design mean for the way that you work? Um, being the centre for inclusive design, I think that inclusive design is part of our DNA and what we really believe design should be like for everyone. If we were all designing inclusively, we'd be designing better spaces and places. With Not For to us isn't just about designing with people who are excluded. It's also making sure that your design team includes people whose voices we don't normally hear. Because traditionally, the way we design, the design systems that we use, as you spoke about before, are designed for certain people. We hear certain voices more than we hear other people's voices. So With Not For is about making sure that the people who we're not normally listening to are heard and that we're taking on board what they need, but it's also making sure that our team has people who are different in it, who have different voices, so that we're actually debiasing ourselves through our own processes. You gave us this example, um, a historical example, which I really like because, as you know, we were saying in the introduction, that design is an ongoing sort of living um, iterative process. Can you tell us about, about this? Absolutely. Um, this photo is a photo of a person called Ed Roberts. He's with the Rolling Quads. It sounds like another band maybe from the 60s, but it's not. They're a group of activists. And this photo looks pretty dark for those of you who can see the photo. And it's a group of people um, at the front. There's a gentleman who's a wheelchair user with, it's a hammer in his hand. The reason it's dark is because it was taken in the middle of the night. And these people were actually hammering the footpath because they were at university at Berkeley at the time and Ed couldn't get from his house to his lecture because of the footpaths, right? There were no curb cuts. So they're hammering in a curb cut into that, that footpath. And when we think about activism and with not for, this idea that we have to really um, change the frame and the spaces we're in to make them more accessible. And these people did that, right? And when we think about what that means to us today, because we have curb cuts, we have driveways for cars, we have ways that we can move prams. When we've got a sprained ankle, that keeps us safe, those curb cuts. And this is where I think inclusive design started. The benefit today, though, is with technology, what we're saying is it's not just one size fits all like a curb cut, that's really important, but it's also what are the multiplicity of ways that we design things so that they fit different people in different ways? How do we personalise spaces and places so that many people can enjoy those places? And Simona, I think um, with trans communities being actively pushed out of some public spaces and then obsessively focused on in others, what, uh, I imagine safety and belonging are really high priorities in your work. What does inclusive design mean in terms of the work that you do? Um, I think it, uh, you know, it's, uh, Mama Alto kind of um, spoke mm. about this really beautifully a few years ago at um, M Pavilion. It was kind of like, have my needs been met? Yeah. You know, and, um, and, and so, and it's, it's about like, I guess, like having the capacity at some point to express those needs. And I think that um, design and the, the design profession, um, governance, all of those things, briefing, um, has a real issue with um, finding out what those needs are. Like, like design needs to be in service to community first mm. and foremost, not in service to awards or to ego, you know, any, and, and that's something that I, I learned from an architect in like New York, um, A.L. Hugh, um, you know, that, uh, so it's about providing, um, well, it's about getting those voices to the table. Mm. And my experience in professional practice in architecture over 25 years was that those voices really weren't at the design table, nor were they at the consultant table or anything like that. So um, I guess, you know, wanting to get out of professional practice was really trying to unpack how those systems are so pervasive 
in in the design profession and how we are failing mm. that community need or that those individual needs of people who are on the margins of access and margins of power and the margins of representation. And you gave us this image, which um, behind you is the airport, the toilet sign and the urinal. <laughs> it's interesting because, and we were sort of chatting a bit about this before, there's one of those that everyone's obsessed with <laughs> at the expense of another. Um, but it's a really great sort of enlightening kind of sort of um, demonstration of where often design is exclusive. Well, I mean, this image came out of activism in, in a very similar way than, than your image as mm. well. It's a, a yes. this necessity. It's sort of, you know, I was doing an um, exhibition at RMIT Design Hub and, um, you know, I, I just very sneakily just got up on a ladder and, um, you know, cut out some, you know, toilet and urinal signs and stuck them over the top of... Um, <laughs> you know, the male and female ones. And I, I think for a while they're still there. And mm. I, I can't, I've, done it, I've done it at Melbourne Uni and they're still, <laughs> they're still there on, in a few little spots. And, you know, it's like if you use the same graphic language, all of a sudden it's like, you know, people don't recognise that it's there, but they look up and they, you know, yeah. it's, you, you sort of embed these things in, in everyday um, symbology and, and all of these things and people read it, and then, you know, um, in that way. But... Um, yeah, so I guess um, then I took a photo of this and it was just kind of like, I wanted to make the point that trans and gender diverse people are being forced into a conversation about bathrooms. Mm. That doesn't necessarily, like, yes, we need access, safe access to bathrooms, um, but that seems to be like where people only want the conversation. It's, it's a conversation that's very limiting and, and I think it's part of a political strategy mm. to stop trans and gender diverse people from talking about the needs that they need beyond that in public space or in civic life or in, you know, anything to do with their, their bodies or their identity. Um, you know, I'm also interested in, you know, how trans and gender diverse experience security checkpoints at the airport yeah. and how that, you know, feeds into things like surveillance and policing and um, body scanners and how we're seen as... Um, you know, non-compliant bodies. Um, and the airport is this amazing thing to unpack because we see how that then makes its way into prisons and schools and mm -hmm. recreational facilities and all of these things that make up the assemblage of the city or public spaces. When you consult on a project like, or consult with the Arts Centre Melbourne, it feels like that, um, <clears throat> that and um, say the, you know, the um, pride building are two different, quite different things because the Arts Centre Melbourne is an existing space with all of its own history and of all of its own sort of constraints wanting to um, increase access, whereas when you're consulting on a new space, then it's probably, you know, you've got an opportunity to start with a much more idealised kind of base level. What, what sort of, what sort of, you know, with those two projects in comparison... What are your design aims and how do you set about to achieve them and make sure that your voice is really heard in, in part of that process? Well, it's interesting that, you, that we look at that and, and compare, I guess, mm. those, those two projects because, um, you know, in architecture we're talking a lot about, I guess, like we're in sort of, I guess, you know, I, I guess like in a mode of repair. Mm. Like we're having to repair the cities mm. and the buildings and these, you know, you know, rather than like knock them down and start again. Um, you know, like I guess like in the early 2000s it was about sustainability, but we're sort of having to repair and retrofit these cities that are largely sort of 20th century, 19th century, you know, 21st century kind of cities. And um, so where gender and sexuality... Um, you know, actually, like, like, kind of fits within that. It, yep. There's this very different discussion about mm. how we retrofit. So, Art Centre Melbourne was really about, well, we've got this much space existing for bathrooms and you know that amenity, um, but you know, it was kind of like, okay, how do we make this work for the cohort? Mm. And I guess like the interesting thing about the Art Centre is that, and, and something like a an event space is that. You know, upstairs you'll have, you know, a cohort of, like, um, you know, I guess, like, 
um, in, like there'll be like 400 people who will be maybe like more like cisgender, heterosexual, rich like people, a, like older, <laughs> you know, like, and then downstairs, you know, like the queers will be downstairs, you know, and, and there's this sort of like, yeah, like there's this contested space that occurs like for the, for the bathrooms and, you know, people are like, Going, all the cishets are going. Oh my God! There's, there's like that's, there's a, what's that person doing in the bathroom? You know, people freak out. You know, yeah, right. And um, completely destabilised. Was that the, the problem that was brought to you, in a way? Well, that Not was in the so pro- many that words. was the problem that I had, had experienced as mm. some as a user okay. of the space, and that I wanted to bring to, I guess, yes. to the attention of of Art Centre. And then with Pride Centre, it's a it's a really new build. So they mm. can kind of start from scratch, go to community and go, well, what are the needs of the community? What can we do here? But, um, you know, but again, it's like, um, you know, a very different kind of build yeah. as well, you know. Yeah. M- Manisha, you um, sort of challenged the concept of what a designer is a little bit. I think we have a really, um, you know, um, a, pr- a pretty sort of solid concept of someone who executes um, but you were talking about even just the day before yesterday, you got back from a trip to Dubbo for, to Dubbo for a very specific project, and the design team is probably not not even you know is is not yeah. what we imagine a design team to, can be. So would you talk us through, you know, this sort of um, challenge, challenge, the way you challenge the concept of a designer, and 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 talk to us a bit about that project, how that's representative of that? Sure, I think. Um the old way of thinking of a designer is a designer is someone who goes out into the world, finds a problem or a group of people with a problem and then tries to solve that problem. My view is a designer is someone who um, recognises that there are problems in the world but brings the people with those problems into the room and facilitates with them to find out what the problem is and then looks at what the solutions might be together. Right. So as a designer, I don't think my job is actually, I've got some technical skills, they're great. You know, um, engineers also have technical skills, coders have technical skills. But my skills, my technical skills don't align with my problem solving skills. And our job is to facilitate so that we actually come up with things together. Um, so often, we've just been in Dubbo and um, this started with a podcast where we heard a podcast by a woman called Jodie Barney who is an Aboriginal woman who lost her hearing when she was eight. And, um, no, sorry, she lost her hearing, she didn't have hearing until she was eight. And at eight she had an operation, she got her hearing. But in that time, until she was eight, her family travelled around Australia and she learnt to speak with lots of different Aboriginal people in lots of communities as the family travelled around. She then lost her hearing again in her 20s and became an Auslan user and now works with the government. You will have heard the stories around um, Aboriginal people being incarcerated. The problems, 90% of... um, There was a study done in, I think it was 2016, in Northern Territory in the Northern Territory, 90% of the Aboriginal people in the justice system had severe to moderate hearing loss. You know, People are being misdiagnosed. Um, there are a whole range of flow-on issues around this. And on this podcast, what she said was, there's one of me, I think there's a couple others who do the work I do. Um, what happens when I'm not around? And so we kind of went, you know, let's look at this. So I texted her. I found her on, online and said, well, you know, can we do something around this? It was in the middle of COVID. Black Lives Matter had just happened. And I think I was sitting at home going, what can I do as a migrant to this country that supports this country? So I texted her and said, can we have a, a chat? I can get an Auslan interpreter. And I later found out the reason she said yes was because I texted her rather than calling her. Okay. And that was only because I had people in my office who I needed to text because they happened to also be, be deaf. So when we've gone out to community, the group that goes out is there's um, Viv, who is a we are in Wiradjuri country. There's Viv, who's um, a Wiradjuri woman. You can see my Vs and Ws getting mixed up here. And um, she has a background in social work, so she really understands trauma-safe work. Um, 
We have Daniel, who is deaf, an IT specialist who is a Wiradjuri man. We have Jody, who understands culturally appropriate deaf systems. Um, we have two interpreters, and those two interpreters are culturally appropriate and they're CODA. They're not just people who can interpret, they're, fa they're people from families, they're, they're part of the deaf community, um, with the capital D for deaf, which then means that, you know, there's a whole lot of us out there, but the people we're talking to feel safer. And when they're in the room, you know, we had two people in the room the other day, and as they're sitting in the room, they're asking Viv where she comes from, who her family are, who she knows and whether they know them, and they're looking at photos together. And then when Daniel's presenting, as he's facilitating the session, um, this woman is looking for people she knows and FaceTiming them and saying, do you know Daniel? Daniel, can you speak to them? And he's signing with them, because for these women who had very low literacy in any language, whether it was Auslan or written, um, and obviously no spoken, they wanted to make sure they were safe and that they could actually say what they needed to say, because we were talking about their health and we were talking about justice. And the stories they told us were difficult stories, they were hard stories. Um, and when we said, do you think this technology might work, we realised that actually for one of these women, because her literacy was so poor, we couldn't tell what was past, present and future. So we've got to go back and go, okay, how do we describe AI in a different way? Because we can't solve their problem. They have to be able to have a part in that. So all we can do is facilitate this system and bring the right people into the room for those conversations. Sorry, that's a bit of a long example. No, no, it's really interesting. Yeah. And so what are you working towards? Are you working towards... Um, my feeble brain is like, is it an app? Yeah, great. Look, it's a really interesting thing, right? Are we thing, designing right? an app here? Yeah, so normally when people come to us as the, you know, Centre for Inclusive Design, they go, oh, we've, we're going to design this app for this community, right? Like, you know, um, it might be an app for where you can find safe toilets. It could be an app for how to teach your child to read. And the first thing we go is like, who's designing it? Mm. And why are you designing it? And they go, oh, well, you know, we think this will be good for someone. In this instance, we know there's a problem. We don't actually know if AI will work and we don't even know if an app will work. Uh -huh. Okay. So we've actually just started by going, can AI help? What can AI help with? What patterns of AI might be useful? Um, what we're thinking of at the moment is we might end up with a website with some um, AI-based signing, with some image cards, Mm. And with some chat GPT at the back of it, we think might work together, but we really just don't know. If we came out and said, actually, all we need is a card deck, physical cards, then that's what we'll do. Okay. And I think this is the critical thing, because we think technology will solve everything, right? Mm. But actually, humans solve everything. <laughs> Human relationships solve everything. And technology is good as a pencil or a pen. You, you know, you just need something that will help us connect. Yeah. Um, Simona, I'm interested to ask, you've also done some teaching mm. and um, I'm always interested to know where, you know, are, how are, um, how is these kind of notions of um, design, very human-centric design and designing for people who are vulnerable and in the margins and inclusive design starting from the edges rather than from the centre, is it being taught enough and um, so that it goes through or is it, 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 how could it be more central in terms of the way that people, architecture students for example, or the way that designers learn from the beginning? I think that um, design justice is a really, yeah. you know, like is it, you know, well, I wouldn't say emerging, I think it's been around mm -hmm. for a while, but, um, you know, I guess, um, you know, like I'm, I'm interested in, I guess when we're talking about design justice, it's sort of like how do people from um, a lot of different silos who wouldn't usually kind of work together, how do we come yeah. together to design the worlds and imagine mm. the worlds that we in, inhibit? Um, you know, and the great thing about architecture, it is totally about world building. The great mm. thing about queering and transing is that it's about imagining queer and trans futures. 
Um, so um, I guess the, this sort of comes together as a really great design methodology. Um, you know, we can think about feminism, we can think about abolition, we can imagine these very radical futures. Um, that queer and trans people have, by the way, have been dreaming and imagining their way through since they were kids just to navigate their way through life and space and family and the city and all of the things, you know. So I think that's the thing to be celebrated. In terms of like um, education, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, a lot of my research I think has been looking at um, like really critiquing I guess you know the 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 ways that the the, the way that change comes. Mm. You know, it's sort of like if you sort of look at the conservative approaches that we're seeing in the United States or in you know the United Kingdom. Um, if we look at the centrist approaches that are perhaps happening around parts of Australia or perhaps some of maybe even the radical kind of approaches that are happening, and you know it's a, it's about sort of like picking apart. Um, I guess what those outcomes are and then what what do we need to do and then we can arrive at I guess like looking at architecture as a social justice practice mm, mm. and working across the silos of like you know of, of architects and designers or landscape architects or urban planners like how do we kind of look at governance how, you know how do we look at how do we how do we work with lawyers how do we work with um, people in healthcare, in people in criminology. And so, mm. you know, I guess like with my PhD, like, you know, like I had one supervisor in architecture and one supervisor in gender studies. Mm. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we work across those faculties? And I think that model of um, pedagogy is something that is really important for a model of professional practice that we actually work outside of those silos as well, because, um, you know, and, and then again, it's like, you know, how do we, yeah, the way that, you know, I've always had a real problem with the way that stakeholder engagement has been, yeah. is, is taught, and the way that it actually is in practice, like, the, the way that I've seen stakeholder engagement in professional practice is just like, oh, this is just horrendous, like, <laughs> I just want to head by the desk, um, because... But this is not in service to, you know, like the, yeah. the architectural brief is is the start of administrative violence. It's 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 the start of where people are written out. So I just think it's really important in education for people to understand architecture's capacity to enable exclusion um, across a whole range of people and that we need to understand um, people's... Um, like political, um, like socio-political relationships, um, you know, with with the city or with the built environment, and and how do we deliver people, like, with the best outcomes so that they can um, engage in civic life to their to their fullest extent and thrive in that. Mm. And I think there's something here about um, the privilege of education as well, mm. and that our old education systems or our current education systems are really based on decoding squiggles on a page, right? So the more squiggles on a page, some people call them words, that we can decode, and the more of that you can do, the higher your money is, the more you get paid, all right? And our education systems are based on the fact that that means that you're smart somehow. So... I think this is where people get so nervous sometimes about things like AI that are decoding squiggles on a page really bloody fast. Um, but in the university system, one of the things we've really been advocating for, and when we do inclusive design classes and courses, is where are the people who are the other in this room? Mm. And sometimes people in that room have different experiences, but there are often people who aren't actually able to be in that room and who aren't given the opportunity to be in that room. And also the way that um, we grade people is based on a particular way of working. So when we um, run, you, and you know, you're allowed to do this at master's level, not necessarily at, at undergraduate level, we'll often say to people, well, you write your assignment in any way you want. It can be an image, it can be a picture, it can be a story, it can be a article or a paper. Mm. But actually, and, and 
can we get some people in this room in this course who actually have a knowledge and understanding, deep embedded knowledge of exclusion? Because actually they have the skills, the capacity, the resilience, the understanding, and also they know where your blind spots are in terms of the way our social structures are set. We need them. They're actually our experts. How do you get them yeah. in the room if they have been excluded yeah. from the education system? Because it, it's getting even more exclusionary, yeah. if anything. it's really tough. And it's also, do you make, how do you make that space safe, right? So in, um, not so much in Australia, we have a sister organisation in Canada. And what they do, and in fact in Dublin as well, at, and what they'll do is they'll actually say, they'll get the um, organisations to sponsor two pe people that they pick. Okay, so one person comes in from your Microsoft and then one person or two people come in from the, the Inclusive Design Centre pick. And those people are people who they know who haven't necessarily finished university. Um, and the conversations they have are around constructive dialogue. The first conversations are around constructive dialogue. How are we going to work together? Who has the loudest voice in this room? Who has the privilege in this room? How do we think about... Um, you know, reflection. How do we think about ourselves? Before you actually put pen to paper, before we start thinking about theories, before we start thinking about, you know, the d dimensions of inclusive design, we actually need to learn how to be in a space together and what it means like to fail or to get it wrong and what it means to be safe. You know, I get it wrong all the time and... Um, I always feel nervous about it because people kind of go, oh, well, you work for that place, you should know better. Well, I don't. I, I normally get it wrong somewhere. Um, but what I keep saying to myself is actually if I don't push the edges, if I'm not listening to people who are telling me I'm getting it wrong, and if it, I'm not safe enough for them to tell, then I'm, that's, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's what we try to do. It's a bit of a utopia. Have we got there 100%? No, nowhere near that. But that's kind of where I'm really passionate about pushing this because otherwise we're going to be excluding more people and we'll make the world crappy. Simone, Sorry, you had a very technical term. <laughs> you had a very knowing smile when I asked that question. <laughs> I'll provide safe workplaces for, yeah. um, uh, yes. for, and um, and safe education settings would be a good start, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. You know, particularly for trans and gender diverse people and queer people and. Um, uh, you know, and the list goes on. Um, well, I mean, that was a question I was going to ask you. <laughs> it's not <okay>. So <laughs> as you've it's arrived okay, at it, um, I mean, how, how hard is it to continue to find ways to push forward in this space and to want to do the work and want to make change with the ongoing pushback and politicisation um, of every, you know, aspect of trans existence, but then also the, you know, the, the um, academic institution that is, in, in theory, supporting your work is also um, perhaps not the most safe place in some ways. There is also the site of contested, you know, politics at the moment. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you know, is, is you know, is academic freedom... Uh, is, is, is uh, you know, the principles or the, you know, the virtues of academic freedom in competition with something like a LGBTIQ um, inclusion strategy? What's hate speech? Mm. Um, you know, like, what can you say on the weekend and then turn up to work for and do, you know? What can like, you tweet on the daily? <laughs> what can you, you know, what can you tweet? Yeah, all of these things. Like, mm. um, um, there's, uh, there's um there's not, there's not too much... I'm effectively kind of silenced a little bit mm. on, on this topic, um, uh, particularly, but I, I can just sort of put it in, in those terms, I think. But it's, it's, you know, we need to provide safe places for people to think and, and for people to work and for um, but people to be themselves. Mm. And, um, you know, there's, we've, we've got to... And to provide account, accountable... Um, places, um, I, I, I think. I mean, there's a couple of things that have come up just from what we're saying here. To uh, just to talk about AI. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like the algorithm is weaponized against. Mm. Um, you know, like so many people. You know, um, you know, it, it's 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 weaponized against people of color. It's weaponized against trans and gender diverse people. It's weaponized against queer people. 
um, it, it, it's and people who live at those intersections are, are all the more at, at risk. Um, and um, so AI, therefore, it's kind of like, well, who's feeding that AI? 100%. You know, what are the 100%. inherent biases of that of that AI? Like, we, we can't rely on AI to design our worlds no. because they're just gonna. Um, or we have to be uh, so active in how you ed how the AI is educated and well, and be you know who's. Who is feeding it? Who is I don't think we it? can be Yeah, you know, like and corporations yeah. are going to feed it, you yeah, know. Exactly. It's, I don't, you know, like who can be trusted and regimes are going to do that, you know. So We have a late arrival. I was hoping for oh. a bit of late last-minute drama. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love to welcome Jenna Cohen to the stage. Just very quickly, Simona, I put this image up because you were talking about um, finding spaces, um, you know, in the midst of... Um, I guess um, spaces that aren't necessarily as hospitable and welcoming and, and engaging um, and, and finding those kind of in-between spaces and designing them as well, um, which talks to your um, PhD where you, it's kind of like the convergence of music and architecture. Yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, queer and trans people have been around forever. We will be around forever. And, um, you know, like, and the best thing is, is like that amongst these contested cities, amongst these places of hostility, we find um, really, um, you know, amazing places of of, of uh, resistance, of community, of, um, of, of, of chosen family, um, of partying. And, you know, like, and, and um, you know, this is... This is a great photo I took, um, you know, of, you know, of, of us all pouring out of Sub Club one morning, um, you know, like in between lockdowns, you know, yeah. and there were people from all over the country who were like, oh, we all want to come down and party in Melbourne. This is the entry to our mm. underground. Mm. This is also the third space of the club, you know, this is where we smoke and like, you know, you, this is a, a really important space, but, you know, it, 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 some people are like, oh, it looks like shit, but it's like, <laughs> no, it's beautiful, you know, like, yeah, it's cold and it's wet and we're all sitting on our ass and we've all got like, you know, we've all got dirt and shit all over our favourite clothes and stuff, but, and then we just go downstairs and, and all go home. But we have to, this is safe at the moment, but we have to walk around that corner yeah. and the end of that street and when we've got to make it to the Uber or make it to the tram or make it home and that's or an incredibly unsafe, <laughs> that, you yeah. know, we have to mentally prepare to do that every time we leave that space. Mm. Um, and some of us do it alone and some of us do it in groups and that affects our way that we participate mm. in the city. Yeah. Um, I would love to continue, but I would also love to welcome Jenna to the stage. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> uh, Jenna Cohen is the founder and director of Honeycomb Access and Design, combining her experience as an architect with her passion for disability ad advocacy to help shape the way buildings are designed to include people of all abilities and disabilities. Honeycomb collaborates with builders, architects, surveyors and organisations at every stage in the design and build process. Welcome, Jenna. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you making the mad dash. <laughs> it was touch and go, but I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. I think, um, given you have just come from South Korea, I think it's probably a good example of how you work. Um, can you talk us a, through a little bit about, you know, what you were researching in um, Japan and in Seoul and how it kind of relates to the work you do in terms of um, finding, you know, access points or building access points in, in a number of cultures mm. and cities. Big question. Mm -hmm. um, firstly, I wanted to dive into my phone listening to you talking about <laughs> toilet inclusion. Um, I became, I called, I was like vlogging in Japan and South Korea and I was literally going into toilets and filming different toilets without people. But it's so interesting to compare different cultures just based on amenities. Yep. Um, and I know and I agree that we shouldn't mm. just focus on it. But as an example, it was a really fascinating discovery. Um, so, um, yeah, so my work in, in South Korea and Japan was basically to... Um, assist and find out what a, a particular company is doing there in terms of their um, accessibility and inclusion. Um, and it was a bit of a research project to audit the offices and see where they're at with their inclusion and accessibility. And um, 
that will hopefully enable this company to develop a design standard for how they roll out future offices um, across the world. So these were just the sites that I happened to go visit. Um, but yeah, culturally and generally in, in both countries, I found it fascinating and um, a bit refreshing um, to reflect on Australia and where we're at with inclusion because they are very far behind there. Um, yeah. Except for in the toilets. It, well, except for the toilets. The toilets in the public places were great and then everywhere else, um, inclusion and accessibility was really far behind. Yeah. With your work, um, even, you know, here, how much of it is, I imagine you get a lot of builders coming to you and just saying, you know, we need to uh, meet some basic sort of requirements and, um, you know, some handrails, some lifts, some, you know, door width access, that sort of thing. And then how much of your work is then trying to build onto that to, to put more of a human-centric experience into the whole design of a, of a um, building rather than just those sort of bare minimum kind of standardised requirements? Mm, yeah, great question. I, I think similar to what you were speaking about earlier, Manisha, about putting the people in the centre of the design process and obviously the better the, the I design... I love that you've obviously been watching... I was listening here. in on the Uber. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to overlap um, <laughs> topics. But I think that um, when that happens, then you don't need to retrospectively fit a handrail or a ramp or that sort of thing. Um, a big part of my role as an access consultant is very technical and it is tick boxes and um, issuing exemptions in some cases and checking that, you know, handrail, um, which is super important elements. And I think that we do need to have our minimum standards met and our requirements in Australia are, are getting better. And um, I think it's great that we have them. But I think the issue is that designers are almost rote learning the standards and they, they mm. believe that if we're meeting minimum compliance, then we're accessible. But no, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, and last year there was a case, um, a court case, which will also be very telling in that space and I think a really positive step for opening architects' eyes up um, in very short. Uh, the case was um, Ryan versus Sunshine Coast Hospital and um, a man who has since passed but he had a disability and he claimed discrimination against the hospital from not being able to find his way from A to B. Mm. They did an assessment, they looked at the hospital, it ticked all the boxes in terms of compliance, but there were things that were found such as glare and use of materiality and signage that didn't enable him to get from A to B. Um, and he won that case. So I think it's a perfect example of, of just that. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm often telling clients and people that I'm working with that, you know, okay, great, we've got the bare minimum ticked. Now let's think about all people um, and where possible to do that from the beginning and with the end users um, in that conversation. Segue to a um, very appropriate audience question. Thank you, Anonymous. Um, what are the latest innovations in regards to building accessible spaces? And I think that could, that there's um, a number of ways that you could interpret that. So I think it could, could mm. apply in different ways. Uh, yes. So... Mm, innovations. Um, technology plays a really interesting role with accessibility because often technology in buildings are things like smart screens or like destination lifts. I don't know if anyone's ever used a destination lift mm -hmm. in a new building that they've visited. Very confusing. Um, and so, yeah, with the screen being there, there's no tactile element, um, so it can be very exclusionary. Um, I well, think an, yeah, another I question think, if that's yeah, challenging I, I uh, yeah yeah, yeah go to, for it Manisha um, talk about that as well I think one of the um, there's a couple of innovations that I think are happening one is to your point it's the um, merging of the real world and the digital world so like now our brains actually we've moved phones but if, if anyone can remember the iPhone that had the little like silver thing on it that felt like a button that was a haptic blew my mind because I kept thinking it was a button but it wasn't a button it was actually an electrical code that came in and it felt like a button on my finger and so now our brains can't tell the difference sometimes between the real world and the digital world 
So then when we think about our workplaces and spaces, what does that mean in terms of personalisation? Um, so I think that's one of the issues and, and the challenges from an innovation perspective. And the other one is um, not only hybrid offices, but open plan and open space offices. And, you know, the notion of um, designing for some people and not other people and what that looks like. I was talking to someone who works at Atlassian and they had this... Um, they really had a push around low sensory spaces for people with disability mm. and they weren't able to get them through and they found this space under a stairwell that they created, you know, popped a desk in. became the most used desk, the one that everyone wanted, not just people who had sensory issues, but everyone who had sensory issues at some point. So I think from an innovation perspective, it's not just about things that are, you know, holograms, um, it's actually about how we redesign things to work for modern life. Innovation doesn't necessarily mean technology. No. Mm. And it also means like pre-post-COVID, I think we're all tired. Mm. Our mental health is the new norm, or mental health conversations are the new norm. So it's how do we innovate spaces to fit humans? Um, Simona, I thought you mm. might answer this question first. What are the questions that designers and architects are not asking enough? Uh, well, um, you know, I, I think um, it's who's not included in the brief. Mm. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of pressure on architects. You've just got to design to the brief. Mm. You know, particularly for big, major public buildings, don't contest the brief. And it's just kind of like, well, who's excluded from that brief? Mm. You know, and, and, and often designers will be like, oh, you know, we want to you know, change, change, you know, change like from a spatial point of view or from a, like a tectonic point of view, but it's sort of like who, you know, who, who, who is outside of this program that needs to be included and, and how can we do that? So how can we challenge our briefs to be more inclusive? Um, you know, and, and I, I also think that, um, you know, things like, I mean, co-design and stakeholder engagement kind of works to a certain degree, but it's just mm. kind of like, you know, those people, like people who, in, who engage in those things, like we, we need to be, we need to understand that those people are often under um, minority stress. They're coming into environments that um, they might not feel culturally safe in or, um, you know, safe in at all. Um, and... Um, yeah, they then need to be remunerated as well, and mm. you know, and not just the usual suspects, as you know, and not happens. just a tick box uh, in the process. Yeah, don't misgender your um, trans and gender diversity um, consultant Ouch. in the submission. Mm. Yeah. Oh. oh. <laughs> Um, actually, that, that talks to a conversation we had the other day, Jenna, where you were saying, and I was actually a bit blown away by this because the kind of work that I do, I suppose, is we get, to, we're, you know, we're engaged at the end of a project when we really need to engage the audience to tell the story. But you were saying that quite often um, the architectural design process um, misses audience engagement altogether. So the people who are actually need to use the building or use the space are never engaged along the way. Yeah. In my experience, I don't know what you've experienced, but uh, I've found that unless it's a dedicated study or a user engagement that I've been engaged to do and carry out um, in a general design project or brief, it's, it's not part of the process at all. That kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Um, I, I'd hope that it happens. I've worked in a smaller architecture firm. I'd hope that it happens in, in other firms. Um, I think it's, you know, understandably budget and time and it gets lost in translation. Um, and it's no one trying to, to be um, malicious or, you know, but especially in commercial and public buildings, I think a lot of uh, the developers or the managers or the uh, the client, uh, they don't believe that there is a typical end user and they say, oh, because it's not residential and there's no family, who are mm. we going to ask? Mm. But, I mean, it's the, it's the easiest answer. <laughs> it's just the people that are using that shopping centre or the lady that's using 
the shopping trolley or Just the man at the bus yeah. stop. Yeah. Or the people who aren't using the shopping centre that really would love to use the shopping mm. centre yeah. if yeah. it was designed differently, right? And like I think sometimes what happens is people think, well, we know what a house looks like, we know what a building looks like and an office space looks like. So we don't necessarily need to talk to everyone around that. But imagine if we talk to the people that that space was not okay for. Imagine what that space the, could look like. Who yeah. set that template for design? Exactly. It's probably not exactly. anyone in here. Well, yeah, like and I think, it, I think it's worth seeking out, like, you know, and with stakeholder management, it's like, oh, let's manage the hardest ones. And I'm a bit like, no, mm. let's actually, like, engage yeah. those with, like, the, the, the most challenging issues because that will make the project better. Like, we should be seeking those ones out rather than, like, you know, just making the decisions and then showing them the drawings after it's already been tendered, you know. I, I That's not meaningful community engagement. No, and yeah. I think it's fear sometimes, right? Like, we work in this world where there's a time and a cost issue that we all face. And to engage authentically takes time at the beginning of the process. And sometimes I think it's really hard for people to go, actually, this is going to take time and this person might be difficult to work with or, you know, they don't necessarily fit the way I want to hear this or they're saying things that I don't necessarily want to hear. And shame comes with that mm. and, and a whole lot of other things. So I think that it's, we, have to, we have to do it, though. We have to fight that fight. But it's, it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural to the way that we have traditionally worked. You know, it's not good enough these days to just have a town hall session, hope people turn up, yeah. and then maybe listen to what they have to say and then go to the pub afterwards and design whatever you're going to design. It's not good enough to do that anymore. And, and the reality is if you do do that, chances are it's going to come back and bite you, you know, or it's going to bite the politicians who then come and bite you at some point. So. I should have said I'm I'm answering questions that people have submitted um, via Slido. Um, uh. That we'll say say goodbye to this beautiful party. Um, uh, if you can't access Slido and you'd like to ask a question, please put your hand up and someone will come and and take that question for you. Um, designing for intellectual disability, how do we as a society open up access to public services and spaces which are an inverted quad? comments age-appropriate? Which is an interesting question. I suppose, is that in terms of your is that the dis intellectual disability? So is the assumption there that if someone has an intellectual disability, we have to work to the medical model of the age of the person? Is that I have no idea. I just or? read that verbatim. Oh, there you go. <laughs> However, um, let's just um, more well, generally, have yeah. you ever sort of had to design for intellectual disability and what was the process in, and perhaps different in a different way from physical uh, a physical disability? Mm. Oh, um, yes, I've done a bit of work in this space um, and I think that the answer is that it depends on the person. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are definitely some general things that um, have come about. I think um, things like acoustics, lighting, uh, glare, wayfinding, signage, use of colour, um, those are all things that aren't in our standards, in our Australian standards and building codes. Um, and those are things that if we ask the questions, then we can hopefully unpack what might be suitable for that individual who has an intellectual disability. Um, I'll give a few examples or quick ones. Um, I worked with a school which is a special school and their students um, all have autism and uh, we were talking about the types of uh, fixtures to use in the bathrooms and we decided that the best type of um, tap would be not to use the water saving taps that they, you know you push and it lets the water go for 10 seconds or something so that it saves water but actually the best tap for this environment would be a standard residential tap because in this classroom they're teaching the students um, life skills and hygiene skills. So the fixtures need to be um, as applicable to home life. Um, and another small example, just the, the skirting boards that are typically used in a home that are timber um, for one individual who I spoke with who um, has an intellectual disability, that texture is something that really was um, bothersome and so we were using, um, we decided to use aluminium instead. So yeah, it depends on the person mm. and they can be the smallest things that can make such a big difference. We yeah. had a project recently where um, it was a website and um, 
you know, they had a list of things to fix and we were working with some people. Consistency kind of sometimes becomes a big thing. And they had the same words. It was a training website and they had the project or the training courses named differently on different pages. And they didn't think that was a big deal, right? Like on the list of things to fix, that was probably at the bottom. But actually, when we were talking to people, that was this, such a confusing thing that they didn't know which course to look for, mm. and it became the most important thing to fix. But I think one of the important things here is, like, one of the things we often see with um, intellectual disability, say, and or print um, or language issues, say, uh, you're looking for um, information often that comes back is, can you make it simple to read? put it on one page, lots of dot points, lots of summaries. Who else does that work for? The CEO, <laughs> right? So you design for the edge and sometimes I think we think it's difficult, but if, you, if it works for someone with intellectual disability, it'll work for anyone with high cognitive load at any time. Um, so I think we have to also think about what we consider the privilege and the power dynamic with this. It's 1.30. I'm just going to quickly ask one more question. There are a few that have come through that we haven't got to, which I apologise for, but there's one that it's talking about... It's asking about the Pride Centre in St Kilda, and as we discussed it before, Simona, someone was wondering if you um, knew um, what the... had any insights into the extent of community engagement or how, how community engagement happened f for the building of the Pride Centre. <laughs> Is that a loaded question? <laughs> <laughs> well... Oh, yes, well, <laughs> um, yes, I do. Um, uh, well, I mean, it, it was something we had to fight for. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, there was a town hall meeting. Yeah, And right. it was a bit like, so a lot of us just turned up to it and sat, sat at it and we were like, wow, this is... Started sort of started off with ladies and gentlemen, and that made all of the trans and gender diverse people in the room just go, "Whoa!" Like the next, you know, hour yeah. and a half is going to go really well, isn't it? So, <laughs> um, so you know, so I think that it's sort of like there was a there was a, a bit of a tone, I think, early um, that that people really felt um, excluded. Mm. From um, you know, there's a, there's an sorry, there's an architectural process that happens. There's a design competition. There's a brief. There are all of these things that are written very early in the piece, and um, you know, and and so it's I, I guess like you know, I, I I chose to be on the outside of the architectural process. I I wanted to be with community mm -hmm. because of my experience in architecture. I could see, you know, I've, I've had experience in design competitions, I've had experience in project delivery and all of these things. So I really kind of wanted to sit with my community who, who perhaps didn't have that knowledge and say, well, these are the things I think that are happening now and these are the things that are happening now. Then this is the way that I've seen stakeholders. This is my experience of stakeholder engagement and yeah. community consultation. Mm. And I think that we need to act now or I think that we need to speak up or whatever. So. I I guess, like, I, I was sort of, you know, standing on the outside trying to I just represent the people who felt excluded. So that knowledge has to... It's That's the thing, though, that the knowledge has to come come to the people on the margins. You ha they have to be empowered with the knowledge. Otherwise, how do you come at a process like that, you know? Yeah, and, you know, and, and, and how do we, you know, how do we become designers of our own world, yeah. you know? And, yeah. um, you know, and, you know, design justice is about that. It's about empowering people, you know, to be, you know, like, like last time I did something for Design Week, I put the architects in the audience and I put, um, you know, I, I put the, you know, the, the trans and gender diverse and queer community on the stage because I, I wanted people, I wanted to facilitate a conversation with people who didn't think they had any idea about architect, architecture and design, but they knew about how to communicate their needs. And I wanted the architects and the designers to sit in the audience and to and to hear that yeah. and, and to understand that we are all capable of designing our own our own worlds, you know, and, and, and that, you know, we've been doing it. What a fantastic note to end on. It's 1.35. I could keep going, but um, we are officially done. 
Uh, thank you so much to everyone for coming today. Thank you so much, Manisha, uh, Simona and Jenna for your last-minute dash from the airport. <laughs> you, sh- <laughs> you should probably go and get some sleep and cuddle your baby. <laughs> and thank you to Jess as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre. Yeah. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the following session, Room for Everyone, Designing for Inclusivity, featuring Jess Lilly in conversation with Manisha Armin, Simona Kastrikam and Jenna Cohen, recorded at the Wheeler Centre on Wednesday the 24th of May 2023. This event was part of Melbourne Design Week, an initiative of the Victorian Government in collaboration with the NGV. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.